Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see everyone, uh, and a special uh, thank you for those who've come to support our children and raising them up in the Lord. It's uh, so nice to see so many familiar faces. Well, we've got three chapters of Kings, of Second Kings to get through. It's quite a chunk of scripture, so why don't I begin by asking God's help as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, please speak through your word to us now for these few minutes. Open our eyes to your truth, our hearts to your love, and move our hands to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God is the director of the movie that we call history. He writes the script. He directs it. You can watch the director's commentary as you uh, read his word and look out at the world. And as you look out, you see leaders of empires, dynasties, and they come and go, and we know that it was God who has raised them up, who has put them there. When Saddam Hussein fell, God pulled down his statue. When Vladimir Putin rose to power, it was God who put him there. God sets all wheels in motion. All things happen at God's direction. And it struck me this week uh, that the, the Second Kings, the Book of Kings, it really is dealing with the world on this kind of macro scale, the world stage. Today's passage, there are empires which are torn down. Three kings are assassinated. There's a military coup. History turns and God directs according to his script. And as these leaders are raised up and removed, we learn about the nature of judgment, its speed, its terror, its inevitability. So let's dive into understanding our passage. Firstly, uh, God writes the script and runs the show. You've uh, got an outline there. Uh, Follow along if you find that helpful. Otherwise, there'll be some pointers up on the screen. But we've got three chapters today, and they record quite a sizable chunk of uh, history for Israel. A lot of things happen. But the script for all of this was written in one go by God in 1 Kings chapter 19. And in today's passage, uh, God kind of hits play on all of these things that he said would happen. It's his uh, final post-production movie screening. So why don't you uh, flick back to 1 Kings chapter 19. It'll be back a few pages, 12 chapters. Uh, If you remember the context for 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll we'll pick it up at verse 13 there. If you remember the context, Elijah, he's just run from Jezebel after defeating the prophets at Baal at Mount Carmel. Elijah encounters God on the mountain and God says, verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, He replied, But the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking to take my life. This is a crisis. God's nation, his chosen, his loved nation, have turned on Yahweh. They've turned on him, and they've killed his prophets. And so how will God respond? Well, the next three verses, God lays out his three-part plan. Uh, He gives the script for history to come. And uh, we won't read it, I'll just summarise it. Uh, There's a bit of a a list up on screen. He says we're going to raise up Haziel, which is chapter 8 of today's passage. We're going to raise up Jehu, which is chapters 9 and 10. Uh, And then we're going to remove the Baal worshippers. We're going to remove all of Ahab's family. Uh, And finally, he will reward, he will keep a faithful remnant. And that's the last story that we'll look at today. So that's the script for the next 12 chapters of the book of Kings. But most of it happens uh, in today's passage. Well, 
I'm going to save the first story of today's passage to last, the save the best to last. And so my three points kind of stepping through the passage uh, are going to be, firstly, God raises up Hazel, and then he removes Ahab uh, and his family with Jehu. And then finally, how he rewards and remembers the faithful. And we see that in the, the first story we just read about the Shumanite woman. Well, let's get cracking with our passage. Firstly, God raises up 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 7 to 15. Our story today, it doesn't begin in Israel, but actually in the land of their enemies, uh, Aram or Syria. There's a bit of a map there so you can see how it all fits together. Uh, verse 7, I'll pick it up in verse 7 in chapter 8. Elisha came to Damascus while Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick. And the king was told, the man of God has come here. And so the king said to Hazael, take a gift with you and go meet the man of God. Inquire of the Lord through him, will I recover from this sickness? So the pagan king's unwell, uh, and the prophet shows up. What's he doing there? Well, we know, don't we? God is directing. He's directing history. God has a script. The Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, sends his top man, Hazel, to go and inquire, you know, am I going to make it? He wants to know. Is he going to recover? In verse 9, Hazel went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift. And so he asked the prophet, is the king going to die? But Elisha's answer is surprising. He says in verse 10, Elisha told him, Go say to him, you are sure to recover, but the Lord has shown me that he is sure to die. You're kind of like, wait, did I read that right? Say to him, oh, sure, it's all going to be fine, but in reality, he's going to die. The king would recover unless someone intervened fatally. It's hard to know if Elisha here puts the idea into the ambitious Hazel's head or if he's just seen what's coming. Either way, in seeing the future, Elisha is brought to tears. Verse 11. Then Elisha stared steadily at him until Hazael was ashamed. The man of God wept. And Hazael asked, Why is my Lord weeping? He replied, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire... You will kill their young men with a sword. You will dash their little ones to pieces. You will rip open their pregnant women. Haziel said, How could your servant, a mere dog, do a monstrous thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. And so Elisha here sees a vision of the future. Haziel will be raised up. He will be used as a rod of judgment, of wrath against the Israelites. And they will be punished for their idolatry and disobedience. Elisha here, it's a terrible description. He uses the common language of war. This is how they would speak of war uh, back then. The killing and the dashing of men, women and children. It's terrible. Gruesome images. Uh, And Hazel himself is horrified. He's like, "How, how could I ever do such a monstrous thing? And yet this is the very nature of war, isn't it? War is horrific. Um... At the reports from Ukraine at the moment, that they're the same. It's truly horrific. We forget how horrible humanity can be sometimes. But the question is, why are these uh, terrible things in the Bible? Is God just bloodthirsty? No, they're here that we might learn, that they might warn us. We need to listen to what God is trying to tell us here. There's a warning uh, in the great prophet's tears His stomach turns, he weeps, as he sees the torture that is God's wrath against unrighteousness and unfaithfulness. 
We often think sin is no big deal, but it is so, so ugly. Uh, So too is its punishment. See, God is not messing around. Don't get in his bad books. Do not delay in putting right the sin in your life. For the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do not forgive will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you see sin, if you see selfishness and ungodliness in your life, picture the tears of the prophet. Picture the pain of war. And be motivated to change your life because God is not messing around. But also see the pain that this causes God. His prophet weeps. O Jerusalem, God cries out through his prophets. Why did you not listen? Uh, Andrew Boner, an 18th century uh, Scottish pastor, famously said that the shower of fire and brimstone will be wet with the tears of God. For God hath no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Well, let me hasten to move on past this terrible image. Um, our story continues uh, and it ends with Hazel. He goes back to uh, the sick king in verse 14. It says, Hazel left Elisha and went to his master who asked him, what did Elisha say to you? He responded, he told me, you are sure to recover. You're going to be fine. But verse 15 continues, the next day Hazel took a heavy cloth, dipped it in water, spread it over the king's face. Ben-Hadad died and Hazel reigned instead of him. Hazel suffocates the king. Uh, All that stood between him and the throne was his sick master. And so he acts on his ambition and he is now king of Aram. The prophet predicted correctly uh, and Hazel acted freely to fulfill it. Uh, And as our section closes, we stand back and we see God has raised up a judge He's, he's crowned a king, he's raised up a judge, and he's shaping history on the grandest scale. Well, as we move to our next section, which I've called God Removes, the judge gabble drops, the guillotine falls, and history flies through this section. It moves so quick. We see that when God sends judgment, it is oh so swift. The second section, it it tells the story of God raising up Jehu to be king so that he could put to death the entire idolatrous family of Ahab and Jezebel who had spread like an infection across Israel. And we don't have time to go through all the details, but at this stage in Israel's history, both um, Israel and Judah, were both, uh, both their kings were sons of Ahab. So Ahab was truly ruling Israel and shaping it. Their idolatrous rejection of Yahweh had spread from Israel to Judah. Uh, and so verse 27 of uh, chapter... Ooh, what chapter is that? Chapter 9. 8. Chapter 8. Thank you. Verse 27 says, uh, Ahaziah, king of Judah, walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the Lord's sight, like the house of Ahab. For he was the son-in-law to Ahab's family. The king of Judah was son-in-law of Ahab's family. Uh, and parents-in-law, right? They're just the worst. They're... Oh, no, my parents-in-law are here. No, <laughs> no I'm, I'm very, very, uh, very thankful for my parents-in-law. Uh, and it's interesting seeing actually how much they've shaped me and my Christian walk. They've drawn me closer to Yahweh. Uh, it's been wonderful. But you can see here with Ahaziah, it was the opposite. 
his, uh, he marries into Ahab's family and he, he took on the religion of his parents-in-law. And subsequently, Judah was travelling down the idolatrous road at such a pace, it must have seemed unstoppable. Surely God's only option was to, to remove Judah entirely. But verse 19 says, The Lord was unwilling to destroy Judah because his servant David, because of his servant David, since he had promised to give a lamp to David and his sons forever. Because of God's promise to David, he would not destroy Judah, even though their idolatry was an affront to him every day. Imagine what that would have been like to God every day, having your people doing that, worshipping idols. But he would remain faithful so that one day a son of David, Jesus, could rule the whole world. So how would God clean out Judah? How would he remove the house of Ahab? Well, he's going to raise up uh, Jehu the perjurer, as he's often called. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, Elisha says to his prophet, uh, take a flask of oil with you, go to Ramoth Gilead, and when you get there, look for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, Go, uh, go in, get him away from his colleagues, take him into an inner room, and then take a flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you as king over Israel. Jehu is a nobody about to become a somebody. The prophet tracks him down, takes him into the room, anoints him as king in verse 6. Now he's king of Israel. Uh, and you've got to imagine what this was like. These prophets, they kind of stood out. They were pretty noticeable characters. And the men were with Jehu, and the prophet comes and takes him away. And Jehu comes back, and now he's all covered in oil. And they're like, well, what's the story? What's going on? They want to know. Uh, Jehu explains, and verse uh, 13, we get their reaction. Each man quickly took his garment, put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. God has raised up a king and a judge. Uh, and Jehu loses no time in getting to work. The ball starts rolling so fast that uh, the scythe of judgment swings back and forth through the next two chapters. Uh, and I've just summarized the list. He goes uh, on an absolute rampage, removing Ahab from all, out, uh, all throughout Judah. So um, Joram, king of Israel, is killed, Ahab's son. Ahaziah, king of Judah. Uh, then Jezebel, then 70 of Ahab's son. Ahaziah's relatives, the prophets of Baal. It's a total purge. Cleans out Israel. With surgical precision, the blade cuts, removing the cancerous rebels from God's nation. Judgment comes swiftly when it comes. God's word, it, it lights a bomb which goes off and kings fall and dynasties fail. We don't have time to uh, look at all of the individual encounters uh, with the knife of judgment, but each time judgment comes on one of these groups, it reveals something uh, different about the nature of sinners and their God. I'll just pick one, uh, the infamous Jezebel, who, who had ruthlessly sorted Yahweh's prophets. Uh, she knows Jehu's sword is coming. And so what does she do? Well, uh, chapter 9, verse 30 tells us she puts on her makeup. Verse 30 says, uh, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard about it, so painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked down from the window. It's such an intriguing detail. Jezebel knows what's coming, and she puts on her makeup. Why? Uh, maybe to seduce Jehu, maybe that was the plan, or, or to go out in style, to go out on top, to show she was not worried about Yahweh. The human heart, it digs its heels in. It will not repent, even in the face of death. 
God save us because our hearts will not save themselves. And I'll leave you to read another time about a famous uh, death. Well, it's hard not to see the point Second Kings is trying to make through this section in the way it tells the story. Judgment is swift. A judgment is gruesome. In the days of Noah, we are told, they were busy. In the days of Noah, they were busy going about their lives, worrying about what we all worry about, uh, worrying about you know, all kinds of things uh, like calories. Uh, I've been worrying about calories lately. I've I've noticed some growing love handles and they've been bugging me and so I've been trying to watch what I eat carefully. How many calories is in this house? It's just so, seems so petty sometimes, so trivial. But there they were in the days of Noah, going about their lives. So many things to worry about. But none of it mattered. All of these things were swept away by the tide of judgment that came. See, judgment will come so, so quickly We need to stay focused. We need to listen to the warnings, remaining faithful, remaining obedient to the true king. Well, on to my final point now. God rewards. God rewards. God's script for history, it involves raising up two kings, two terrible judges, Haziel and Jehu, and yet they themselves would be judged. They themselves would be judged for their crimes, for the terrible things that they did, and they would be rewarded according to their actions. Both these men were happy to go along with God's plan uh, because it suited their own ambitions. At one point uh, in chapter 9, verse 16, Jehu, he's mid-rampage, he's he's flying down on a horse, and he he cries out, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. It was kind of, uh, it's very much, it was a convenient zeal for the Lord, shall we say. And and King says this, Jehu's heart was not after God's. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 31 summarizes Jehu's reign, saying, Jehu was not careful to follow the instruction of the Lord of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. And so for Jehu's limited faithfulness, he's given a limited reward of four generations on the throne, we are told. For the idolatry he practices, God took away the security of borders uh, his rule was plagued by wars, and we have this fascinating uh, record as well as scripture in the archaeological discoveries made from the Assyrians. Um, we have this this great uh, drawing of him or someone, one of his men, uh, offering tribute to the Assyrian king. It's it's uh, from an object known as the black obelisk, and it's got all these fascinating inscriptions in it. Uh, but one of them is a it's a picture of Jehu offering tribute. Uh, and, and the carving mentions him by name. So that is how he is remembered. Uh, because he bowed to his idols, he is remembered in stone, bowing to another king in servitude. Well, we have our final part of our passage to continue. It's the one we read right at the start. We saved the best for last. Um, verses uh, eight, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Remember in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, there was a few promises God made, and one of them was that he was going to keep a faithful remnant. And he hadn't forgotten about them. And the Shumanite woman, uh, who we've previously seen in 2 Kings twice in, in the last few weeks as we've been going through 2 Kings, uh, each time she represents this faithful remnant that are obedient to God. And so let me do a bit of a drive-by of the story. Elisha uh, says to the woman in 8 verse 1, Get ready, you and your household, and go and live as a foreigner wherever you can. For the Lord has announced a seven-year famine 
and it has already come to the land. See, God is going to judge the faithless Israel with a seven-year famine, but the faithful woman will be spared from judgment. And so the story continues in verse 2 of chapter 8. So the woman got ready and did what the man of God said. She and her household lived as foreigners in the land of the Philistines for seven years. When the woman returned from the land of the Philistines at the end of seven years, she went to appeal to the king for her house and field. And so she's obedient. She she does what the prophet says. She goes off to live in Philistia for seven years. Uh, But her family's land back in Israel had been taken while she is away. Her inheritance in God's land is gone. And so to cut a long story short, Elisha's attendant uh, just happens to be there talking to the king when the woman goes to the king to appeal to get her land back. Uh, And the prophet ensures that she is rewarded. Uh, And the king says, uh, midway through verse 6, "'Restore all that was hers, along with all the income from the field, from the day she left the country until now.'" And so God has rewarded her faithfulness by preserving her inheritance. And the story is placed at this point in Second Kings as a small reminder um, that God is faithful to his promises, to reward. The story is here knowing that Judah will eventually go into exile uh, as a small reminder. God puts this story here. He's saying God will judge them. They will be sent to a pagan land. But God is faithful. He would restore their inheritance. He would be faithful to the son of David as he had promised. And of course, all who look to Jesus, to the son of David, for salvation, are part of this inheritance. God will reward our faithfulness. He will give us a land in the new creation to come. And so that's our passage. Well done. Three chapters of Second Kings. As we stand back, uh, we see that God has used Elisha, his prophet, to bring judgment Elisha, in the past uh, dozen chapters, he's brought nothing but blessing if you've been uh, with us for these past weeks. All he, it's just miracle after miracle, helping his people, helping his faithful, uh, and helping Israel, even helping the kings when they were not faithful. He's been doing miracles, giving victory, healings, food, even giving life. All the while, he warned of judgment to come for the unfaithful, for the disobedient. And our passage, it's been a bit of a bloodbath. So many people killed, judged for their disobedience. So many warnings that judgment would come, but they would not listen. They did not turn to God. I don't know if you're a a procrastinator. Most of us are at times. Uh, Some of us are procrastinators. Some of us are procrastinators. Uh, And we all know that feeling of stressing out, though, don't we, of this impending deadline. Uh, Nikki, my wife... uh, Back in her uni days was a famously bad procrastinator. Her and her, her family here can testify. Uh, she'd be you know, writing essays, of course, right up, to, right up to the possible last minute, and she would kind of plan for her lateness, and, and she would throw her printer in the car, drive to uni, set up on the table right outside the submission box, and like frantically write right until the deadline, print it out, and then drop it in. I think it's quite admirable, and uh, you know, I think she kind of liked the pressure of the deadline, actually. Um, have you ever had the experience of a deadline that gets extended? Uh, you know, you're stressing out, but then it actually gets pushed back, and you're like, oh, oh, what a relief. And you push the project aside, and you go get a coffee, and you ring a mate, and before you know it, you've squandered your time, and then you're back under pressure, and the, the deadline's imminent once again. 
Well, that's it's very much what we see in Second Kings. Uh, Elisha, he brings blessings, but but also warnings, and God delays judgment, delays because he longs for them to be saved. He wants them to be faithful, but they misunderstand his delay, uh, his extending of grace. They misunderstand it. They think it's all going to be okay. They've gotten away with it. That judgment won't come. But today it did, and it was gruesome, and it was swift, and it was terrible. I don't know if you knew that uh, Elisha uh, shares with Jesus the same uh, name's meaning. They, both their names mean God saves. And Elisha is a prefigure of Jesus. His ministry is just like Elisha's. Jesus came to earth. He did miracles. He blessed. He healed. He gave life. All the while he warned of the judgment to come for those who were not right with God, for the disobedient. Like Elisha, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem as he sees the terror of judgment in store for those around us that do not know him, that are not obedient to him. And so don't, don't procrastinate. Uh, don't dilly-dally. Live today like Jesus will return tomorrow. Be prepared. Don't waste a minute of your life. Be like the Shunammite woman who gave all of her life to serve Yahweh in a society that was against him so that when judgment came, she was spared and received her inheritance. For God is faithful. In him there is a great reward, a wonderful inheritance being kept for us. Let me pray. Father God, may we hear your warnings in Scripture and may we turn to you. Help us to live every moment of our lives with your return to judge on our minds, in our hearts and upon our hands. Help us to live obedient lives to honour you in every way. Father, thank you for making the way clear by sending Jesus. Keep us until that day when you call us home, and may we all see your glorious reward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.